Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. We've talked a lot in the show about how for a product to be truly innovative and successful, it's got to help users make very real progress in their lives. And in many cases, apps or experiences that require click after click or tap after tap, experiences that are relegated to a screen, simply aren't faster or easier than the solutions they're replacing. More and more, we have to consider how our software can be experienced beyond or possibly even without the interface. To help show us what a world of screenless software could look like, we're joined by Golden Krishna, author of the best-selling book, The Best Interface is No Interface. Golden's currently a design strategist over at Google, where he's tasked with defining where Android goes next. He's previously worked at R&D Innovation Labs, first at Samsung, where he helped design their first batch of wearables, and later at Zappos. There he explored new lines of business from the expected, like checkout systems, to things like Zappos Airlines. In our chat, Golden explains what goes wrong when UX and UI design roles mix. When you're a UI designer, you're there to compose a great screen. And when you're a UX designer, you're there to understand, solve problems. And when you conflate the two, you make it so people try to solve problems with screens. What designing hardware can teach us about software. When we design software, especially because most software is on phones today, you really just see mock-ups and rectangles. <laughs> you forget about the entire environment in which someone's using it. And the thinking he believes the most innovative startups today all share. They're not about the number of taps and clicks. They're trying to solve a problem in what I think the best case of design is, which is to solve in the most elegant and simple way possible in this screenless way. I mean, that is a very high bar to try to hit. And when you hit it, I think you get these really crazy kind of amazing solutions. If you like what you hear and want to check out more of our interviews, you can subscribe to Inside Intercom over on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, it'd be great if you could shoot us a rating or a review, and thanks to those who have already done so. Your feedback helps us improve the show, and it helps bring new listeners aboard as well. And with that, let's hop into the studio with Golden Krishna. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Golden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. It's It's an honor to be on the show. So to get started, can you just give us a quick feel for your career trajectory and how you got to where you are today? Sure. You know, my, uh, my design career really started when I went to art school at, at CalArts. It's a school in Southern California, um, started by the Disney family. They, they had this idea of recreating a Bauhaus-like experience in Southern California, and they had a theater program, music program, dance, and I was in the design program. Um, and... I always thought of art and design as this sort of flaky, abstract thing that didn't really mean a lot, but it was fun to do. But when I was in school, I really realized the value and the power uh, of design. And it's an incredibly intense program. We actually, I have friends who went to law school and became doctors, but I feel like I slept less than they did. I at least had two days of zero hours of sleep, so a lot of really hardcore work because I think school is a time in which you can get a lot better really quickly because people really care about your growth. We had, CalArts had this crazy thing at the time called Final Review where at the end of each school year, um, the worst students would be asked to leave. Um, So we, (laughs) we dwindled from 16 down to 12. I've never heard of a school bragging about its uh, retention rate being negative. Um, Turning but, away income. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, which is kind of nuts. And I think they've gotten a little softer um, since. But I graduated from CalArts. I started working at Cooper, which is a design consultancy here in San Francisco, started by Alan Cooper. Um, at the time, I reported to Nick Myers, who's now the director of UX at Fitbit. 
I also did some work with Doug Lemoyne, who has kind of a, a fascinating story. He's now at Apple. Sort of a fascinating story of how he came to be at Cooper. He um, he used to work at the San Jose Tech Museum, and Alan Cooper was asked to speak at uh, a donor's dinner. And so Alan was talking about doing user research in the software world back in 1992, so a long time before a lot of other people. I mean, companies like IDEO and Frog have been doing user research, but at that time they were focused more on industrial design and less on software. Right. And so he's at this dinner. He, you know, this big, big companies room like Adobe, Microsoft, et cetera, the big donors to the tech museum. And Alan's booting up his PowerPoint presentation, and it just completely crashes. And Alan, being Alan, stood up and said, hey, is anybody here from, from Microsoft? A couple people raised their hand. Then he stood on top of the table, and he pointed at them, and he said, you should be ashamed of yourselves. And he was screaming at them. A lot of people talk about fighting for the users. Mm-hmm. Alan literally fought for users. Literally jumped on top of the table for the users. <laughs> so he was always pushing things at the company, and it was, a, it was an awesome place to be. Especially early, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, early, early... In your career, I mean. Yeah, early in the career, getting a, a taste. I think what's nice, this is happening less and less so, but, you know, designers are often getting brought right into big companies right away. But the nice thing, I think, about agencies, you get a, you're in this sort of designer haven, and you get a taste of so many different kinds of projects where we kind of have this nice academic environment going, which is where I first heard about the best interfaces and interfaces we'll be talking about later. But I really always enjoyed the projects where we worked with companies on big picture thinking, on the things we could do next. So I got an opportunity after working at Cooper for about three years to work on an innovation lab at Samsung. And that was the kind of project that I loved to do for a few months, so it felt like the right kind of career move. And at that lab, it was here also in San Francisco. Um, we were sort of a satellite office. Obviously, Samsung is in South Korea. And we worked on new products and services for the next 18 to 24 months, so things that could launch the next 18 to 24 months. That was fun. It was crazy. Samsung's a crazy environment, incredibly internally competitive, externally competitive, obviously. Some really, really smart people there. Um, They're the kind of company that throws everything on the wall and sees what sticks and everything on the wall being in the marketplace. But utterly fascinating to see how a hardware company like Samsung has the success that they have today. And then I, I went from that sort of crazy culture to what I think is the best culture I've ever been a part of, which is I worked at Zappos, and and I worked at Zappos Labs, um, which is another sort of innovation team. And there, I have so many positive things to say about the culture at at Zappos, and and it was a really incredible environment. I got to spend a lot of time with the CEO, Tony Shea. Um, We had weekly one-on-ones at at a certain point, which was kind of awesome. And then I spent a few years there, and now, more recently, I'm, I'm at Google, and I'm working on uh, a long-term, similar kind of team, but within the product of Android. So not necessarily for the whole company, as we did at Samsung, which was kind of crazy, at Zappos, which was smaller, so it's easier to digest that. Um, but Google is so huge. It's kind of nice being inside one particular product there. So what is the future of Android? And that's sort of what, um, that is not sort of, that is exactly what uh, my job is today. Cool. And Samsung, Zappos, Google, all very, very different companies. I'm really curious, how would you describe the design culture from each, and what have you sort of taken from each of those along the way as your careers progressed? So of all the cultures, I mentioned a little bit about Zappos being 
I think the best. I mean, Google culture is talked about a lot and, and in positive ways, and and I think it should be. But there's some things that happen really even early on within Zappos. For example, the first interview that you have at Zappos is not a skills-based interview. I mean, there's so many. I see this a lot in sort of when startups are recruiting and trying to find the best fits. They often fall back on things like, hey, show us your dribble portfolio or, or all these sort of like nonsensical things that, that don't actually amount to whether someone is going to be great. In it's not problem role. solving in action. That's exactly right. And so... I, what I really loved about Zappos, and actually, you know, what's funny is I was listening to this podcast before coming here, of course, to try to prep, and I heard Aaron, who's now at Envision, talk about the soft skills that get people fired. It's not the hard skills, it's the soft skills, because if people aren't collaborative or easy to work with... Can't communicate. Then it's really hard to work with them. And so the very first interview at Zappos is about you as a person. It, they don't even talk about your actual skill set. Um, a lot of companies like, oh, we need the best of the best. We need the top tier talent. First interview is, who are you? Why do you make the decisions that you make? Um, and we talk, and what we're looking for uh, when I was there was we were looking for people who were easy to collaborate with, who were you know optimistic in a sense of problem solving that they would continue to go after things. We weren't looking. At right away at what it is their output was, more about their character. And that first character interview was, is so rare. I've, I've, really, I've never heard of another company that does that. And so then if you pass that, you go on to a more standard kind of interview. And you end up with a culture where, I mean, <laughs> I've had plenty of friends at companies I've worked for, but only at Zappos that I feel like I wanted to get drinks with everyone in the room afterwards. No offense to any other colleagues that I've had who are all, some of them are incredible, but it was really almost 100% of the room. I felt like, hey, let's all continue to hang out. This is such a fun place to work. But zooming out of culture and, and thinking about me personally and, and jumping around to these different places, I've always been excited about roles and opportunities where I have the ability to run in this open field and have this chance to push the company forward and really my personal mission, which is to push the whole field forward. So there's a lot of talk in design about like getting the right craft or getting the right process down, and all those things are really important. But my personal thing is trying to find, my personal mission, the thing that drives me, is trying to find opportunities where I can really push the company and the whole field forward. So going around to these sort of corporate innovation labs has kind of become my niche, I guess, in some way, uh, accidentally, because I've been kind of trying to find opportunities where I can really take big chances. And look, some of my work um, will never be seen, and some of my work will ship in a short amount of time, but it's hard to say what's going to happen. I just go after what I think is the best thing for our customers. Right. And as you you said, you've worked on a whole range of activities, some of shipped. Some are Zappos Airlines, which are totally exploratory (laughs) and something I could spend a whole hour asking you questions about. But a lot of our listeners work in software. You've designed digital products, you've designed physical products. I'm curious, when it comes to the work you've done on physical products, what problem-solving techniques or lessons have you learned from those that can be applied back to software? When you work on hardware or you work on a general service experience, which is a lot of what we did at Zappos, there's a big zoom out that happens. You know, let's say we're designing a new TV at Samsung. When you make sketches for it, you sketch the TV in the living room and you show people watching it. You sketch it in the kitchen and you show what that's like in the kitchen. 
when we design software, especially because most software is on phones today, you really just see mock-ups and rectangles. <laughs> you forget about the entire environment in which someone's using it. Even if you're doing something that's oftentimes, I mean, a lot of startups are going after some small segments of a potential user base. Maybe they'll make some app that's great for accountants. But they won't draw the accountant's workspace or their real workflow. They'll just show what it's like to go from screen to screen in an app. And that's really common to see in people's portfolios, to see in presentations, in slide decks. Is here's a screen, here's a screen, here's a screen, here's a screen. What do you guys think? Here's an animation to it. That can be good, but it's also really nice to zoom out and look at the entire customer experience. I can't say too much about this app. It was Airlines thing, but that was an incredible project. I got to work directly with the CEO on as we explored that opportunity. And we did a lot of customer journey maps. That's not a new phrase that I'm, that I'm saying, but it's so rarely done in a day-to-day basis um, where you really see how someone works through a flow. If it's something that's on the phone, when are they looking at their phone? Why are they? What are the triggers? What's going on around them when they're doing it? Is this the kind of thing they're using when they're on the train? Is this the kind of thing they're using when they're walking? Very different kinds of things to think about. There's a lot of fitness applications where people wear it on their shoulder or something when they're jogging or cycling, but the buttons aren't any different in size. The, The text isn't any different in size, even though the distance between the phone and that person is different, or that they're not trying to be as distracted. Those are huge things that we just completely leave out that I think in the hardware world we see a lot of because we draw out those whole scenes. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned this idea of designing from screen to screen and drawing rectangles and it leads me to a book that you published two years ago that's gotten gotten some good acclaim. The best interface is no interface. When it comes to embracing the core philosophy that you talk about in the book, how are we doing today, two years later, as product makers? Are we still trapped in this world of screen-based thinking, or how's the landscape changed? I mean, yes and no, right? I think, you know, in, in the late, one of the things I, I talked about when I first started writing this book was, was I was looking back to other huge kinds of changes. And, 
in the late 1970s, uh, I think it was 1978, there was this piece in The Economist about how the office is filled with paper and we need to dream, live in a paperless world. And that was considered crazy at the time. And it was. Actually, in the 1980s, the amount of paper used in the American office went up. So here was The Economist saying, we're going to go live in a paperless world. In the very next decade, we use more and more paper. But in today's environment, there's actually less and less. And starting in the, in the around 2008, people have been using less and less paper in the American office. And maybe eventually we'll end up with this paperless world. In a similar kind of fashion, we are inundated with screens today. I think the average American adult spends a little over eight and a half hours looking at a screen. Teenagers who are mostly in school spend about seven and a half hours a day looking at a screen, which is crazy. Even children under the age of eight spend about two hours a day in the United States looking at a screen. That's a lot. That's a lot of screen time for a lot of people, Um, a good portion of our waking hours. And so I'm here to talk about, and and the book is really about, how do we go from the screen-filled world to a screenless world? And just like that economist piece took decades to even start to be realized, I think the technology industry moves a little quicker than the paper industry. <laughs> I, I would hope so. <laughs> but, um, but I still think it'll be a good number of years. And I think there's a lot of things that, that kind of slow us down on the way. I'll say, when I wrote the book, it was really hard to find examples. And, and I can go through some of those examples. I think they're pretty fascinating. But since the book has been released, the number of examples that I've been able to find has just rapidly incre- increased. And I love to think that's because the book is out there. But I also know and feel like this is a movement that is going on beyond just the things that I'm saying. So speaking of examples, who do you think is doing this really well when it comes to embracing this type of thinking? When I first started talking about this, I I gave this example of this car key app, an app versus a piece of hardware. And, you know, BMW had released this app for your cars. Um, and we still see this kind of thinking in Tesla is this giant screen and center console of their car, where people are trying to make car experiences better with screens. And they thought they could improve unlocking your car doors by making an app. And if you think about the actual experience, the very thing that we were talking about earlier here, we're thinking about the actual environment, someone's actual journey. When someone is walking out of a store, walking out of their house, and they want to unlock their car doors, They first take their phone out of their pocket. They unlock their phone in some manner, whether it's slide unlock under pin code, whatever. They swipe through a sea of icons trying to find that BMW app. They tap to launch the app. Then in the BMW app, there's a menu they have to look through and kind of understand one of them is remote, and they tap the remote tab. And then inside that remote tab, there's a slider that slides between lock and unlock. That's not easier than going up and, and, and using a key. Alternatively, before we sort of got obsessed with all the apps, you know, Mercedes-Benz worked on a project where you walk up to your car doors, and when you pull the car door handle, a radio signal gets sent out. And if your keys are in your pocket or your purse, the car doors just unlock. And that technology has been licensed to a number of the car manufacturers, including Toyota today. But what it did is it, it followed the first principle of the book, which is to embrace typical processes instead of screens. So instead of taking people away from the typical process, bring them back in. And I'm seeing a number of startups start to follow some of these models, and I think it's really kind of awesome. There's there's this simple door locking stuff, right? So there's this this startup called Lockatron. 
um, which has a door unlocking app. You put it over the deadbolt of your of your apartment or your house. Um, and their 1.0, you had an app, and it, you had to take all these steps just to unlock your front door. Never easier than a key. Right. Maybe more convenient because you can uh, you know rent it out to another person. You can kind of lend unlocking your, your, your front door, but not an actual That's, that's a different problem they're aiming to solve anyway. Different problem, right? And what they did in their 2.0 was they said, you know, what if we just cut out all these steps with screens? And they just put a simple solution to this, just put a Bluetooth radio in their door lock, turn on Bluetooth with their app, you walk up to your front door, you're within a foot, the door just unlocks, right, in a similar kind of manner. Now, those are really simple, straightforward examples. But some people have been employing data science to do things that I think are far more advanced. For example, there's a startup called Digit, uh, which tries to help people save money. A lot of people in the United States, in the Western world in general, are pretty horrible at saving money. I think that the majority of Americans don't have savings past two months. So if they were to get fired, they only have money for about two months to hit their bills. I should double-check that stat. But I think it's roughly that. And so... They're trying to solve this problem. And what Digit does is it hooks up to your checking account. Now, this is far more advanced than keyless entry. Yeah. Keyless, <laughs> the keyless entry. We're talking about financials, so you really can't mess up here. And when they're flying to your checking account, they see the money that's coming in and the money you're spending on typical things. And they look for little pockets, little times in which they can move money from your checking account to your savings account. So when you spend a little bit less, they're, they're kind of grabbing some, moving it over. And when they see opportunities to do a little bit more and be a little more aggressive, they'll do that. And what they do is they're kind of behind the scenes moving some pennies over. And over time, building up your savings account. That's pretty neat because it's a savings account that works without you ever having to interact with it. It's, it's faster. It's easier. It's bringing all those adjectives into whatever problem you're trying to solve. It's totally true. I, I, can, I can keep listing startups. Maybe I'll just go one more, one more startup here. I, know, I, I think that there's some medical ones, but I think the financial ones are super fascinating because they show that this kind of thinking can be employed in, I think, higher risk situations. Your money. There's another startup called Even, E-V-E-N, and even looks at the problem for freelancers and people who are hourly paid who have inconsistent paychecks. So each two, two weeks, they don't quite know what they're going to earn. And especially if you're freelancing, which maybe some of the listeners here do, you get a big project, you get a lot of money from it, then you might have a down period before you get your next project. And so it's hard to know your financial future. And what Even does is it looks at like money that's coming in and instead of you getting inconsistent paychecks, they just average it out and they give you an even paycheck every two weeks. So you know exactly what's going to happen. And what even does is if you make a little less, they make up some of the difference. And if you make a little bit more, then they save that to give back to you later. It sounds so simple, but what's so fascinating about these kinds of startups is they're not about the number of taps and clicks. They're trying to solve a problem and what I think the best case of design is, which is to solve in the most elegant and simple way possible, in this screenless way. I mean, that's, that is a very high bar to try to hit. And when you hit it, I think you get these really crazy, kind of amazing solutions. One common thread I noticed in all those examples you've mentioned is there, these are earlier stage companies that are really shaping the core of how they solve problems rather than larger companies that don't necessarily have that flexibility in terms of there's process baked in, their teams are already well-constructed. So for, for people that are really starting to approach the problem that their product solves, what can they put in place to help facilitate this thinking? 
You're absolutely right. When you're a startup, you have the ability to shape things that you don't otherwise. Um, a lot of big companies advertise, and even designers talk about themselves as these sort of they, they advertise for these UX slash UI roles, and those aren't the same thing. They aren't the same thing. When you're a UI designer, you're there to compose a great screen, and when you're a UX designer, you're there to understand solve problems. And when you conflate the two, you make it so people try to solve problems with screens. And there's all sorts of problems within large companies. So it's great for startups to not be able to repeat that. I was talking to a designer who is a couple decades older than I am after I gave a lecture, and he was talking to me about being a designer in the early 1980s in technology, trying to be one. And a lot of companies at the time, a lot of software at the time was command line, and they were shifting towards graphical user interfaces. It was sort of a newer thing. It was first proposed in Xerox in the late 1970s, but then really came in the mainstream in the 80s, especially when Apple launched their Lisa computer. But he was talking about how hard it was to go to a company and say, hey, I'm going to be the guy who's going to be drawing icons and choosing colors. They'd never done that before. And it was crazy for them to think about actually hiring a designer on staff. And in fact, it took, I would say, many years before having a designer in a technology company became more of a regular thing. But now it's completely commonplace. And I think as we make another shift and we start going away from thinking just about screens and employing all the new kinds of tech that's available out there that's just sitting on your smartphone and rather unused, I think you're looking at new kinds of roles. I think you're, you're obviously talking about bringing in a data scientist into your team. You're talking about potentially bringing in a mechanical engineer who understands how sensors work. Um, and the unlocking example, right, that's, I talked about simple Bluetooth radio, but there's all sorts of sensors that exist on a phone you can do some fascinating things with. And so you start bringing these people into the room, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of data scientists today are sort of relegated to these analytic roles where they look at things post-production. So they're like, oh, how many people went to this page? How many people spent this much time on a page and look for patterns after it's already happened? But when you're in a startup environment, you can bring those people into the creation process. They're actually the forefront of the problem. And that's exactly where you can get these incredible insights that no one else is doing, right? This is how you can sort of beat the big guys. I'm at a big guy talking about how you can beat them. But this is really where it's at, right? You can create a team that they can't. And you can bring in people that they don't think about, that they didn't think about when they made their product. So if you want to take a leap forward and, and recreate something... Um, you know, one of the things I think Google did really well early on is when they launched Gmail, they rethought of Gmail, rethought of the email experience at the time with the available technologies that introduced conversations and whatnot. But all those products are at these big companies were created a number of years ago with different kinds of constraints. If you're a new startup trying to disrupt a space, you can build it with a new set of people who have different kinds of insights that others would have never thought about. So there's a real opportunity, I think, even in just the hiring and then how you include those members on your team, um, which could really make a big difference in your end product and your growth. One of the things that's really emerged since the time you wrote the book is voice UI. So I'm really curious to know, is how do you see this? Is it a better alternative to screens? Is it just another problem or piece of the problem of distraction? What are your thoughts on that? You know, there's a part of voice UI which I completely hate, and there's a part of voice UI which I think is fascinating. And, and, and the part that, I, that bothers me is that when we went from command line 
to graphical user interface. We went from guessing, I have no idea what to type in right now, to seeing a set of options, a set of icons that you can tap and launch something. Right. When we get into voice UI, it's just like command line. It feels like we're taking a step back. You know, you put an Alexa, in your, or sorry, an Amazon Echo in your home. The naming of these products is part of the problem. And uh, you, you don't know what to say to the Echo. You know, what is it going to do? The other day I was listening to music on it, which is one of the few things that I think you can use it every day for. <laughs> that, um, that it usually gets right. <laughs> and, and I said to it, I don't want to hear this song anymore. And I thought that I was informing it that I don't like this kind of music, but actually the only thing it does is skip the track. So it actually doesn't have any intelligence there. But you create, you know, when you have an object you could talk to, you create this expect, this crazy expectation that it's like another person. And I don't think we will be there for a long time. I think at least five years before it can do a few more things good things besides play music. Just because there's so much possibility of what someone could say, I can get some things kind of better over time, but that expectation is so high. And maybe part of that is because we watch science fiction movies where these computers can just do anything our voices say. Uh, part of it is because we interact with other people. And when we interact with them, we use our voice and we expect them to respond in a human kind of way. So it is a huge, huge uphill battle for voice to be uh, done correctly, but it's it's not at a great place right now. But th- good things could happen. So getting more towards the work that you're currently doing today, uh, Ben Evans published a post last week that I was really curious to ask ask you about uh, about the idea of the the S curve and that like similar to PCs before it, that maybe innovation for phones is starting to flatten out. Someone that works on the forefront of that, I'm curious if you agree <laughs> and. What do you think will be the next thing to take off? It sounds like voice maybe isn't that thing. I don't know exactly, but I I'll, I'll say this. You know, I think that Ben is an incredibly smart person. I think that the S curve seems like a pretty real thing. I don't have any data to prove that it is. And I think that my role or the reason that I was hired was not to follow that S curve, but to draw a new one. That sounds crazy to draw a new S-curve, but that really is the purpose of a role like I have. So, yes, I think in a lot of ways smartphones are rectangles. They'll get a little bit bigger. They'll get a little bit thinner. Maybe some of the borders will disappear. I don't really know. I don't know exactly what people can do in hardware. I have some insights, sure, but there's always surprises. And I think for those kinds of things, you know, we've kind of like, we use icons. I mean, there's some fundamental things that will probably stay somewhat there. Maybe we'll be able to challenge them. And I think I am here and I, and I will fail Google if I can't come up with concepts that draw a new S-curve. Now, maybe I draw a new S-curve and we don't see it because it's not possible for a number of years. Or maybe we see it in a few years. I am in a constant battle to try to figure out what that is. I pull in tons of research. I try to do my best. Uh, I'm on a team. Obviously, it's not just me who's doing this. But maybe we can figure out that new S-curve, and I, and I really hope we can. Maybe part of that, I would uh, personally love part of that to be this these screenless experiences. Well, Golden, I know you've got a lot of crazy new S-curve ideas to go work on that you can't tell me about while the microphones are on. But to, ra- <laughs> to wrap up... Where can listeners get more of your insights or find your book? Are you speaking anywhere anytime soon? I actually don't speak at too many conferences, but I actually but I have three coming up, which is kind of rare for me. I'm speaking in Quebec City at a conference uh, that goes by the acronym WAQ. It's a web conference. 
that I'm speaking outside Detroit at, at an automotive conference, HMI. Um, and then at the end of May, I'm speaking at UX London, which is a, a big UX conference. But generally, to find out more about what's going on and the th- kinds of things I'm talking about, you can go to nointerface.com, which is uh, about the book. You can go to goldenkrishna.com, which is just for me. Or you can follow me on Twitter at goldenkrishna. Any of those things work. Or if you just want to email me, you can. Um, I'm not afraid to give my email address. I, it's golden.krishna at gmail. I think after the book got released, I counted some something over 800 emails that I got, um, and I replied to all of them, um, although some of them about six months late. So hold on tight if you email me. My inbox is flooded. But it's great to be able to connect with people and see their concerns, hear their feedback, because it just makes these ideas so much stronger. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming in today, Golden. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me here. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.